Hello everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and thank you so much for taking some time to listen. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. We explore events that have taken place on the eastern shores of Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia, otherwise known as the Delmarva Peninsula. Originally, the name of the podcast was Danger in Delaware, but as Delaware is a pretty small state, okay, the second smallest, and I found events sometimes feed into and impact other states, mostly those who are included on the Delmarva Peninsula, but sometimes even some that may not be on the peninsula. Today, we will be visiting the year 1953 in the northern part of Delaware, truly bordering New Jersey, at least in reference to the water. But the incident did take place in the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal, or CND, with the land proximity in Delaware. And it's actually extremely close to where an incident from a previous episode took place. Today, we will explore the collision between the SS Phoenix and the SS Pan Massachusetts or Pan Mass, as she was referred to in many instances, and how I will refer to her for the most of the episode. Also, before I begin, I do want to provide a disclaimer. This podcast reflects my personal interest in true crime, disasters, history, and more importantly, the exploration of how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I mean no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this information through publicly available sources from the internet, documentaries, and YouTube. In some cases, personal observations about the area and knowledge about certain areas may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I've gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee that everything involving accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any areas, misinformation, and time delays, i.e. there are further updates after the publication of the podcast. As a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various instances. All sources will be listed in the description of the episode. In this case, the report that included the known facts, stories told, the conclusion, and recommendations was used as the main source, with other publications providing backstory and supporting information. The first few minutes of this episode will be used to set the economic and transportation scenes of the time. I think that it's important to understand the times the importance of the cargo ships, and things we've learned. So the planet Earth is covered in water, approximately 71%. And even though the U.S., as an example, has over 4 million miles of paved road, there are still some things that need to be delivered in other ways, including delivery to the recipient country, or in this case, the U.S. So water is the world's highway. And this is in keeping with the history of the world. Even before Columbus set sail to discover, quote unquote, the new world, nations and peoples had been using water to explore, 
to obtain goods that could not be produced in their part of the world, just as we do now. To give an idea of current use, there are approximately 770 very large crude carriers, known as VLCCs on Earth right now. These are carriers that have a deadweight tonnage of around 2.5 million tons. I actually went back and checked that to verify that it was in fact million, and yes, it is 2.5 million tons. An ultra-large crude carrier, or ULCC, has a deadweight tonnage of 2.5 to 5 million, though some info that I found said the tonnage starts at 3.2. I could not find the number of these carriers, but due to their size, they've had to really use custom ports and docks, so while able to carry more, it may not be efficient because of other limitations. The transportation of crude, oil, gas, or any such fuel is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, user of massive ships and shipping lanes. And whether or not anyone wants to face it, the U.S. consumes a huge amount of these fuels in various and different applications. Shipping has always been an integral part of this country's history, and not just to the U.S., but to the world. I don't think that today we always recognize the importance of ships to our economy, but I want to set the scene and give an idea of how important shipping lines were, especially around the East Coast and Delmarva. Ferries were used to transport people to and from the eastern shore of Virginia to the west. In 1954, so really just shortly after the incident I'll be reporting on, and to quote specifically from the board, Virginia General Assembly created the Chesapeake Bay Ferry District and the Chesapeake Bay Ferry Commission as the governing body of the district, subsequently the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and Tunnel District and Commission. To be clear, this is not the Chesapeake Bay Bridge that leads to Baltimore from the Delmarva Peninsula. This is the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel when a bridge needed to be built to span the Chesapeake Bay from the eastern shore of Delmarva to other parts of Virginia, there had to be some ingenuity used. While the use of ferries for the crossing had been the norm previously, increases in shipping needs had led to a commission to explore the possibility of a fixed passage. In other words, a bridge. But could a bridge that could adjust to possibly changing needs in the future? So even things that may not be anticipated at that time, even be built. There needed to be adequate room for ships to pass, sometimes more than one at a time, while allowing the traffic flow to continue unheeded. A drawbridge, just in my opinion, would be too cumbersome and inadequate. When you have a bridge that spans that distance, connecting two major parts of the country's thoroughfare, the backup of cars would be enormous. The distance that the span would need to cross over was just around 17.6 miles. By the way, my husband happened to mention the bridge tunnel at dinner a couple of nights ago. Automatically, I started spouting off that the bridge tunnel was 17.6 miles long and etc. etc. And he just stared at me. He sometimes thinks that I have an encyclopedia's worth of odd trivia in my head 
but I think this one really took him aback. I finally had to tell him I had literally just written a paragraph including this information earlier in the day. Anyway, traffic would be backed up on both directions many times a day if a traditional drawbridge type design was used. I've traveled the Bay Bridge Tunnel, and while imposing, it is also awe-inspiring. But it was done for shipping. Though the mid-1900s, ships were still an integral and necessary part of the economy. The bridge tunnel was an engineering feat that allowed for most of the passage to be a traditional bridge while, while dipping under the water for two one-mile spans so that ships could cross over at these parts. It opened in 19, 1964 and was named one of the seven engineering wonders of the modern world the following year. I feel that this information is relevant because it showed the continuing importance of ships even after other tragedies had taken place and that they are irreplaceable at this point in time in order to continue our lives as we know them. So since the earth is over 71% water, that should be plenty of room to avoid any incursions. Or is it? There are not only VLCCs and ULCCs roaming the earth, but there are small, smaller tankers, fishing boats, cruise ship, other cargo ships, and the list could go on and on. But still, it's so much water. So, we would think that open water should not be an issue. Think of it as a bottleneck. There are ships that are in the gigantic bottle of the oceans. However, they're all coming into this bottleneck at ports. So, since you have ships meeting there, that is really one of the prime locations where you could have some type of collision or accident. Even in today's world of advanced technology, radar, centralized communication, accidents still happen. I'm sure we'll be covering some of those in the future episodes. So, in 1953, before computers and GPS, accidents could abound even more. In the late evening of June 5th into the early morning of June 6th, 1953, two tankers albeit smaller than the ones mentioned above with the VLCCs, were on a collision course in the CND Canal. If you've listened to previous episodes, I've mentioned the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal as the line that divides Northern Delaware from what we affectionately call Lower Slower Delaware, meaning Kent and Sussex County. We sometimes just say below the canal. The Phoenix, owned by National Bulk Carrier Company, or NBCC, but being leased to other oil companies, was empty on this day. It had left the Sinclair refinery in Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania. The Phoenix actually had a history within the state of Delaware. NBCC filed suit against the U.S. government regarding the purchase of the Phoenix and two other carriers after World War II. The suit was filed in Delaware with some Delaware attorneys working on the case on both sides. I'm not going to bore you with the details that would probably make an accountant squeal with glee, but it had something to do with the purchase price, mortgage, taxes, and a change to the law on purchase prices which instigated this lawsuit. 
The Phoenix was the first of the Phoenix-class Phoenix tankers, but there were only four of this class ever made. The fourth ship was actually built using the same design, but it was not commissioned by the Wartime Maritime Com Commission. It was, however, built by the same company that had built the previous three. The Phoenix was 556 feet long, according to one report, and 542.6 according to another. But either way, it was huge. It had a dead weight tonnage of 23,900. DWT is the measure of how much weight a ship can carry. It is the sum of the weights of cargo, fuel, fresh water, ballast water, provisions, passengers, and crew. The Pan Mass was also built by NBCC, but just a little shorter at 515 feet or 501.9 according to the other report, but again, huge. The Pan Mass had already had a turbulent history. So a ship that someone would have to drag me onto the boat, then trap me because I'd be scared. And I'm not one to be scared on ships or planes or bridges, but given this history, I would be. The Pan Mass had already been damaged by fire in Texas while loaded with aviation fuel in 1947. It took a day before the fire was under control, but she was repaired for further use. A little over six years later, she would once again face an inflagration. On the 6th of June, 1953, with its collision course with the Phoenix. The Pan Mass had left Texas City and was on its way to Philadelphia with a cargo of 150,000 barrels of high-octane gasoline. At the time of the collision with the Phoenix in the Delaware River, both ships exploded and burned. At this point, I could go over a very heavily redacted 12-page report, as well as a few pages of response to that report and investigation. From what I can see on the official report, it seems really that only names are marked out, but this can make describing the accident even more complicated. But I'm just going to cut to the chase and describe how the accident happened according to both the evidence and testimony. Then I'll go into the aftermath. I lived up in the area of Delaware this, where this occurred for a few years. I can visualize the waterways that are described in the report, but it would be extremely hard to do that over a podcast. So I will try to put it in terms that I think most people can use to visualize. I will also link two dot diagrams to show what it would look like using a rudimentary speedboat as a point of reference on how ships would pass each other. It may actually help to visualize this as the smaller speedboat with the pilots sitting on the left-hand side to steer. According to the pilot of the Phoenix, they sounded the horn twice, which means they would pass starboard to starboard. Given that the two ships were heading towards each other, this would mean that each ship would move towards the left. Picture this like you're driving a car in England. You would be, in essence, driving on the left-hand side of the road. The pilot reported he did not get a response, so he sounded it again. Again, no response. 
But then all of a sudden he heard a response of one blast and he had to think fast on what to do. That one blast meant that the Pan Mass wanted to pass port to port. This would mean that each ship would have moved to the right and you would be passing each other like you were driving in the US. And according to the pilot, the Phoenix hadn't planned for this. There was hardly anything that he could do to avoid the collision when the response from the Pan Mass was made so late. So he had to try to go hard right, but there really wasn't enough time. To compound the issue, it seems as though the helmsman was having trouble steering due to a gear malfunction. So with that, the pilot responded with one blast to let them know that they were trying to pass port to port, but it was all in vain. The pan mass hit directly into the starboard side. So if I had met this pilot, I would probably need to give him a bit of advice or anyone who finds themselves interrogated by any board of maritime inquiry. If you're going to lie, make sure that you aren't relying on a boat full of crewmen who are injured and lost four friends. Yes, this tragedy cost four men's lives. So don't rely on their friends to back you up because I assure you, they won't. Nor will the men of the ship that you hit be privy to the whale of a story that you're telling, nor would they want to endorse it even if they did know. They are going to tell the investigation panel what really happened, and it's not what you said. The watch officer on the Phoenix gave testimony that was backed up by many others. The events are as follows. The Phoenix saw the pan mass when it was about five miles away. Though these tankers can't change course on a dime, it's still five miles and that should have been sufficient time to change the course. The pilot of the Phoenix, in fact, had done things in the opposite of how he testified. He started with one blast, meaning port to port passing or driving on the right side of the road. The pan mass responded in kind quickly, so to port it was. The ships were facing almost head to head and each appeared to be moving slowly to the right, so they were going in the right direction, no pun intended. The helmsman of the Phoenix turned hard right because time was becoming very critical, but all of a sudden, the pilot of the Phoenix ordered two blasts, so this would in essence undo what they'd been doing at this point, and he ordered it hard left. The two ships were now about a quarter of a mile away from each other, so that previous 4.7 miles had gone by very quickly. And even though the original intent and movements had been for both ships to move right, the pilot of the Phoenix continued with another two blasts and orders to keep her left. The ship's master of the Phoenix then appeared on deck. By the way, he'd been working in his room, working on what I'm sure was a tedious amount of paperwork but when he heard the first blast, he ignored them because it sounded routine. It was when he heard the second two blasts, he decided to take a look at what was going on. He had enough time to enter the deck, ask the pilot, what have you done? Why don't you stop her? He made a com command to stop, but then the collision occurred in about five seconds. Okay, I can believe most of what the ship's master said, 
but according to the watch officer, there was a first blast of one signal, followed by another, by the pan mass. But this is not mentioned in the master's testimony that he even heard the first single blasts. I don't know if it was unintentionally omitted or you know, who knows any number of possibilities, but the explosion after the impact was almost instantaneous. A cargo tank was destroyed and there were flames everywhere. The ability to communicate externally was also destroyed. Then there was a second explosion and the helmsman jumped overboard and the third mate was ordered to drop the anchor. The chief mate started to supervise the lowering of the anchor, but no one saw him alive after that. As soon as the accident happened, the pan mass tried to reverse to get free of the phoenix, but they became intertwined. The crewmen used what they could with opening the fire hydrants fully to try to dampen the fires, but on the phoenix, when the second explosion took place, it caused even more jarring and damage to the pan mass. The water around the ship started to burn with the release of the cargo. And I'm going to assume some of the flammable liquids used in the maintenance and running of the ships as well. In fact, the burning of the paint on the ships was also mentioned as a feeder to the fire. The fire first started staying first in the immediate area of the carnage but, as does happen with water, it started to make its way downriver. The fire on the pan mass started to make its way also into two different cargo tanks. Men were desperate, desperately both trying to put out the ever-growing fires as well as protect their own lives. Lifeboats and life vests were in use, but one lifeboat on the pan mass, number four, could not be launched. The crank was, well, there, but still missing. The actual crank was on the deck, but it was not connected. Also, the adapter that worked to connect the crank to the bolt was missing. A third explosion happened and crewmen were left to face the flying debris. Men trying to fight the fires had to concede that the fire had won. Most men on the pan mass jumped overboard at this point. Some of the engineers stayed as well as those who were working to try to launch lifeboat number four, which they did eventually with the help of a wrench, and they climbed aboard the lifeboat. The signal was then made to abandon ship so that if anyone was still on board, they would know that they could leave their post. Back on the Phoenix, the explosion number three, which seemed to have happened below the bridge, when flames started to take over and the master jumped overboard. The pilot's knee was also injured as he was retrieving a life vest. The second mate, who along with so many that night was a hero, helped the pilot over the side before he went over. With the anchor now in place, the third mate and a lookout waited a moment, but then realizing that they could not make it back to the bridge because of the fire, jumped into the water. Again, a hero. The third mate shared his life vest with the lookout who didn't have one. While all of this was going on, those in the engine room were left to try to figure out what they were going to do. The stop order from the Phoenix ship's master actually got to them slightly after the impact. The engine room was flooding, but all engineers came to assist. Power was out and they attempted to restore it, 
but mostly the circuits were tripped. They tried to keep the steam smothering system going, ironically by lighting fires. A steam smothering system does not actually put out a fire. What it does do is decrease the amount of oxygen in the room where the fire is, as well as cool the room. Though after the third explosion, the engineers fled the engine room and went topside. There were no available lifeboats with those that were still there cut off by the fire or heat. The chief engineer wanted to stay on board as long as possible as he was hoping to see other boats around, but there were none. He then gave his order to abandon. Just shortly after midnight on June 6th, the fourth explosion occurred. This was deemed the strongest explosion and thankfully by this point, both ships had been abandoned with both ships almost entirely on fire. It was then, with a lessening of available material to, to hold it in place, the pan mass was able to become disentangled on its own and started to drift. It eventually landed on a shore in New Jersey. I kind of wonder what New Jersey responders must have felt like. I believe, you know, if I'd been there, I would have looked at the emerging situation and acted with valor as these men did. But after things were settled, after the fire was under control and they had a chance to breathe, I wonder if they felt like Delaware was not being a very friendly neighbor. Now, going back to the previous episode I mentioned where there was an explosion at an Amoco plant, New Jersey also responded and helped Delaware out in that situation. But it took four days to completely extinguish the fire. As with so many things, the human spirit and kindness thrives when there's need. The explosions were heard miles away and many answered a call that they did not have to, but felt that they needed to. Calls came into emergency centers to report the incident. There were actually army engineer vessels in the vicinity and they were the first to arrive along with the Salem, New Jersey rescue squad. So again, New Jersey is coming in to help their neighbor. A freight ship was in the vicinity and it did pass the two ships, anchoring about three miles away. I definitely understand that. The ship's crew needed to be protected as well. They attempted to launch a lifeboat, but the engine failed. By the time that they went to another lifeboat, rescue efforts were well underway and the captain of this ship, named the American Ranger, deemed that he could not be of any further assistance. During testimony, it was relayed by a number of the men that the life jackets did not work properly and would ride up, or as seen in other descriptions, the body would start to slip out until the top tie of the life vest went directly under the chin. He eventually undid the tie, and this is when he experienced the biggest biggest issue. He started to slip more and more and the life jacket was not effective. The survivor said that he had been in the water approximately one hour and 45 minutes but finally had to take the jacket off but still kept it to hold on to. Thankfully he was rescued shortly after. While the life vests were a major concern to those who needed them that night, the true value could be heard in one man's testimony. He could not remember going into the water, but he had donned his life jacket early on. When he awoke, he was then in the water, on his back with his head above. 
with the life jacket on properly, it had done its job admirably without the survivor needing to do anything other than put on the jacket. Even when he was incapacitated, the jacket did all of the work. The life jackets were all up to standards of the time. Numerous tests were run and showed that they worked as required. At the Phoenix, four people had lost their lives that night. The pan mass did not lose any. At the time of the report, three of the four bodies had been found. So, what did the report conclude? First, they completely ignored the testimony of the Phoenix pilot, as both the testimony and position of the ships did not support his tale. And that's really what it was, a tale. And there were also winds and tides that were strong that night, but this was a known issue in the area. In fact, it was actually common for lighter vessels, or those that had no cargo, such as the Phoenix, to pass port to port in accordance with the flow of the tides. It was the lighter ship, even though it was still heavy on its own. Most accidents don't happen for just one reason. There's usually redundancy built in so that many transportation vessels, if they have one error, it will not lead to the demise of a ship, much less two ships. I'm not saying that it never happens that a catastrophic event leads to the tragedy, but in most instances, there is a chain of bad decisions, bad luck, or both. The Phoenix was slow and wide in its turn. It did not recognize the dangers that the winds and tides, both to the starboard side, posed, though most ships were aware of the tides at Reedy Island in Delaware and had made their adjustments accordingly. The pilot of the Phoenix, while having the better vantage point, should have realized that a crash would occur and should have slowed and also sent a danger signal to the pan mass. Also, the pilot indicated that there was a gear issue with the steering. However, the inquiry found that while the reel, while the reel was stiff, this was a known issue and was not a contributory factor. The helmsman knew how the wheel stuck and he would have known that he needed to use more force or strength. And though the pan mass did what they were supposed to under the letter of maritime code, I feel that there were still some things that they could have done differently. They did make the adjustments to go port to port per the first blast agreement, and the inquiry found that the pan mass was in no way culpable. But this reminds me of something that my driver's ed teacher said many years ago, and I'm paraphrasing here. Don't assume what the other driver is going to do even if they are signaling it. So what he was trying to say is if you're waiting to cross at a stop sign and someone is heading into that intersection and has their turn signal on, indicating that they will turn before they get to you, you should still wait until you're sure that the driver is going to turn. He or she may have accidentally left the signal on after another turn. Also, they may change their mind if they realize that that's not the street that they need to turn out, turn at. And this has actually happened where I did not heed this warning and had to slam on my brakes. So should the pan mass have been more observant of what the Phoenix was doing and even slowed as this would give more time if any changes in course needed to be made? I think they should have, but this is just my opinion. While the investigation briefly mentioned that the pan mass could have been more prudent, 
I would like to think that, you know, if two ship's pilots are carrying an obscene amount of flammable cargo, or even just fuel to use in their own ship, that even if they thought they might touch by an inch, they would make maneuvers to be absolutely sure that they did not touch. So while you can't control what the other person does, you can control what you do. On to life jackets. The inquiry took the concern over the life vest to heart. After numerous tests for buoyancy and the issue mentioned in the crewman's testimony, it again concluded that they worked exactly as they were supposed to. The inquiry felt that there were two things that could be done though. First, train the crewman on why the vest is made the way it is and what the purpose was so that even if they're uncomfortable, they understand that they needed to use the vest as instructed. So don't untie the top tie. Secondly, it was suggested to move the top tie down about six inches lower, as it was found that it could still keep the person afloat, but allow more leeway before it got below the chin. The lifeboat, crank, and engine. The first assistant engineer removed the davit or the adapter in question. On June 5th, the chief pumpman saw that it needed to be replaced and reported it. This is where the redacted names really make things very confusing. There were two people involved in the construction and replacement of the adapter, but with the names redacted, I can only see that one actually made the new adapter, which I actually find this kind of wonderful as it shows that the engineers did have hands-on experience and didn't just enter a product number on an order form and wait for it to come. After it was removed and constructed, it was turned over to someone else to fit the bolts and complete the replacement. Person one thought this should have been done by 5 p.m. on June 5th, but it wasn't. So I do not know where the first assistant engineer fell into this, did he remove it and have others work on it? Was he the one who was involved in the manufacturing before he passed it on? What is known is that person number two was not informed of its importance and stopped work at his normal time that day without completing the replacement. The inquiry found that while his um, first assistant engineer actions did delay in the launch of a lifeboat, he had no ill intentions and they thought that the knowledge of what could have happened that night, such as even more loss of life on the pan mast, was an adequate punishment. The report ended with a few items of note. Let's just say the Phoenix pilot was not their favorite person, and he probably regrets so, so many things in relation to this accident, not just oversights and actions done directly related to the accident, but how he tried to protect his own hide without really thinking it through. These were the four recommendations. That the pilot be charged with negligence for failing to navigate his vessel in a narrow channel so as to keep to his own right. And right here, I'm actually reading from a copied PDF and some of the typing is faded out, but basically it says the pilot was negligent. Point two was that the pilot be charged with negligence for failing to exercise reasonable care to effect an agreed upon port-to-port -port passing with a vessel. 
that the pilot be charged with negligence for failing to sound the danger signal when it became doubtful that the previously agreed upon port-to-port -port passing could be safely affected. Point four was that the additional test be conducted in the Merchant Marine Technical Division on all models of KPAC and fiber, fiberglass life preservers, preferably in the water, to determine the proper position for the top tie tapes and to determine whether or not modification of the design is indicated to prevent jackets of this type from riding up on the rarer's body while in the water. Yes, they only had four recommendations and three concerned the pilot. Though, frankly, I do think that there should have been some more recommendations to the pan mass about being defensive drivers, to use the term that we're probably more familiar with, and address and recommend how all work orders should be addressed in relation to the lifeboat crank adapter. I at times found myself wondering if they were so perturbed by the pilot of the Phoenix that they almost ignored the pan mass in regards to the inquiry. As I mentioned before, tragedy can bring the best out in people. In the report, there was a point, though not a recommendation, that said as follows. Although there were only isolated references in the record, the board took notice of the valuable services rendered by the Army engineers, the state and local authorities in both New Jersey and Delaware, the city of Philadelphia, the U.S. Navy, various disaster relief organizations, the hospitals in the area, commercial organizations, and numerous private citizens. Had it not been for the timely response and concerted efforts of all these organizations and individuals, the loss of life and damage to property resulting from this casualty would conceivably have been far greater. So, what are my complete thoughts on the accident and the subsequent inquiry? Just to emphasize, these are my thoughts based on reading the report, any additional info, as well as knowledge of how some things are done today. First, in the report itself, to me, the writing of it seemed haphazard. Now, you might be asking, why am I mentioning the writing of the report? For one, the report could have easily been cut down by three pages or more, making it easier to read while still emphasizing the key points. At times, it was difficult to figure out if the report was discussing the Phoenix or the Pan Mass. Someone reading it without the redacted names may have had an easier time surmising this mention of a certain crew member and realized they were on a certain ship, and it would have made it more clear. So while it's not actually part of the cause of the accident, it could still be made easier for both contemporary and future sailors to learn from. If reports are going to be made so that people can learn from them, they have to be easily read and easily understood. Another thing that I noticed is there was no report of the environmental impact. A lot of the cargo from the pan mass could have been retrieved though it did lose cargo as well as the actual fuel, debris, and other hazards. My curiosity could stem from the previous episode regarding the Amico explosion from 1980. There was environmental impact, and even decades after the accident, Amico, or BP, British Petroleum, who had taken them over, was still held liable. 
it may also be something that, as decades and generations have come, there is more awareness of the importance of the environmental impact. In information about cleanup done two to three decades after the Amico explosion, studies found that the pollutants were five feet deep in places. While the report indicated that this was due to pollutants released from the explosion, it does give insight on how one incident can be detrimental to the wildlife habitat and natural resources for years to come. I also do have to wonder if all five feet were just from Amico, or if half a century of ignorance, or just plain ignoring, created a veritable marsh of pollution. In the report, there was mention of paint. In, one, in that section, it mentioned that the fire was also fed by paint. I tried to find if this was addressed anywhere and could not find that it had been. I found information generally that stated that paint was not flammable, but was combustible. So if you're anything like me, I question what the difference was. So this is a direct quote from a source. Flammable and combustible liquids are liquids that can burn. Generally speaking, flammable liquids will ignite or catch fire and burn easily at normal working temperatures. Combustible liquids have the ability to burn at temperatures that are usually above working temperatures. While the difference is noted and even deemed acceptable, it actually concerns me when something so readily seen on any type of construction is combustible. In the case of these tankers, it fed the fire because the fire was above normal working conditions. And what do I see as the cause of the accident and actions that were taken? While I'm not a sailor or an engineer, I'm just an observer, but to me the cause is complacency. Complacency on the part of the Phoenix pilot in navigating what he saw as a normal or routine passing. This is echoed in the ship's master ignoring at least the first blasts. Complacency in assuming that another vessel is going to execute every maneuver 100% correctly, even though the winds and tide were having an effect. Complacency in how repairs are done. We've been on this, the thought could have been, we've been on this ship how many days and nothing's happened. All it takes is one minute, not even the whole night. So procedures should be in place for a reason. Later on, complacency about storage and fuel and oil, indicating that lessons are not learned easily. Complacency of our natural resources. One shipping accident or engineering disaster won't hurt that much, or at least we can tell ourselves that. But with decades of misuse, ignorance, and ambivalence compounding each disaster, we cannot afford to be blind to the impact on the planet that supports us. I also see complacency on the American Ranger who could not launch the lifeboat because the engine was not working. It was just assumed that it would start even though it may not have been used since it was first put on the ship. So I guess if all else fails, maybe we can just tell the powers that be within the shipping industry and this company in particular, as they were both owned by the same company, that the total loss was $13 million that night. Well, in today's money, that's approximately $130 million. 
So what happened afterwards? Unlike the phoenix, the mythical bird, the phoenix ship did not rise again. However, the pan mast did. After a brief, brief stop in Baltimore for salvage, it eventually made its way to the NBC shipyard in Japan, where she was repa repaired, lengthened to 646 feet, so quite a bit, and relaunched under the name of the Commonwealth. She later went through incarnations under the name of Calgary, Defiant Spirit, and after another fire in 1966, the Cerberus. But it did not actually sail under that name, but instead was sent to be scrapped. I guess at three fires, her Defiant Spirit was spent, but maybe I should make that four fires. She was going through the process of being broken down in the fall of 1968. And again, I see complacency here. This was being done with 22,000 gallons of oil still aboard the center tanks. So during this operation, one tank completely exploded and the tank to each side was significantly damaged. The decks fell and the bridge was destroyed and Picture me face palming about 30 times as one face palm is not sufficient. There was also salvaged oil stored in drums on the deck. Some of these drums caught fire, which spread to another boat, the Coastal Sentry. The boat was also slated to be scrapped with 57,000 gallons of oil aboard. So this was not only questionable safety wise, but stewardship wise. If these two ships alone were being broken down with 79,000 accounted gallons of oil on board, did the owner have any intention of using this oil? I don't know how economically feasible it would be or what the cost of salvaging and transporting this oil would have been, but it seems like an extreme waste to not only irresponsibly handle the oil, but seemingly have no clear construct of if it would be used. They also were not looking at it in terms that this oil could catch fire and spread very easily. So again, I know I'm looking back on this with 21st century knowledge and concerns, things that they may not have even discussed in the 1950s, but to me show complacency in many areas of shipping at that time. But again, we do study accidents in order to try to learn from them. So, with so many other adventures that the Pan Mass has been on, she did not let the fire adversely affect her for too long. The fire was put out pretty quickly, but it took 15 hours to completely put out the fire on the Cerberus. But alas, her time was over, as our time here today is. So, I do want to thank you for taking some time to listen again and learn just a little bit about the shipping industry in the 1950s and also to see how far we've come. I was able to read some things in reports of the time and just shake my head. But I also have to recognize that I take what we have here for granted. I take it for granted that everyone has always had access to a seemingly endless documentaries on safe handling of flammable material or the aftermath if not done properly documentaries on man-made disasters over centuries, that everybody also has always had an accessibility to knowledge 
that no other generation has had before. So I do have to recognize in the 1950s, things were different. And with each accident, people started to learn what they should and should not do. And as long as we learn from an incident, at least then it would not have been in vain. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I will be working on a couple of other episodes over the next few weeks. And depending on what information I can get more quickly, that will depend on what's, what the next episode is. So I will have all of my contact information in the description of the, of the episode. So if you do have an idea of something that you would like me to cover, please send that either to my email, which is still dangerindelaware at gmail.com or my Facebook page, which there is a link to in the comments in description. So thank you, everyone. I hope everyone has a great rest of your day. And thanks again for listening. Bye.